Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And today you just have me and Peter, or Peter and Uh-oh. I. <laughs> Back to our original I, format. I know. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a minute. So today we're going to be talking about dissecting the drivers of luxury wine pricing. And lucky for me, Peter, you actually wrote a book on this topic. For people who don't know, maybe you could give a quick two sentences about your book and what it covers. And, and maybe they'll be interested in buying more of it and you can get some more royalties. Sure, sure yeah. So my book is called Luxury Wine Marketing. I wrote it with Liz Tosh, who's a master wine and professor at Sonoma State. And it really covers the best practices in the industry of how selling wine at the high end or the luxury end, as we define and describe it, is different from what we call more commercial wines. Because the customers are totally different, how you price, package, the stories you tell and how you sell the wines are all needing to be in different channels and target a different customer base. And so you need to think about it differently. You can't use your classic CPG type marketing materials or marketing tactics to sell luxury wines. And so it really covers and builds frameworks for all those areas for luxury wine marketing. So when we talk about like wine pricing segments, I always laughed at some of the names because they're like premium wine is like 15 to 20 dollars and super premium is 20 to 30, ultra premium is 30 to 50. And then we start to get into luxury as we start to creep above 50 dollars. But in your book, you talked about how that the user groups for these at a certain point changes dramatically and in the marketing principles change as well. I was wondering if you could talk about how you saw the market as opposed to in doing an analysis of how price and how the consumer behavior changes and how is that different from kind of the classic just simply doing it by a price differential? Like what are the new categories that you're defining in the book? Yeah, and those price categories make a lot of sense when you look at the wine market as a whole, right? As a whole, the average price for a bottle of wine is like 7 or $8 a bottle. And all that volume shifting from two-buck chuck to box wines is at the low end. And for that sort of market and the broader market in general, even $20 and above, some people classify as quote-unquote luxury, right? And we try to differentiate that to mean like luxury is actually more of a like a luxury product where there's some differentiation in terms of the reputation and status of it that it has as a product and as a brand, but also provides to the, the consumer, right? Because luxury is often about like differentiating yourself by saying, hey, I drank Krug or something like that, right? And so we started our luxury wine pricing structure at 50 to 99, which we call affordable luxury. And at that point, it's sort of an overlap with what we call the more commercial wines because people who are buying $20 bottles at the grocery store may also be buying wines in that in that category. And then we hit like 100 to 200-ish, and that's what we call the everyday wine for the luxury buyer. And that's like a really expensive wine, right? For most people, including me. But and so for the people who are drinking the seven or eight dollar bottle wine, that's like a, a dream wine to ever drink a hundred dollar bottle. But when you get to this category and, and types of consumers that are executives, that might be athletes or, or other people who are spending a lot of money on wine, that is often their 
daily wine, right? If you look at LeBron James's wine posts, Sasakaya might be like everyday wine, right? And they can afford that and they can afford to do that every day. And then when you hit two to 500-ish, we call that like special occasion luxury because even the richest of people often will splurge for wine, but not want to splurge too much because it's one bottle, it's consumed pretty rapidly. And so like I often talk to different of the, these consumers and they would say like, yeah, $300 is, is a special bottle for me, right? It's for like a special occasion. But there are wines even above that, right? And so when we get to 500 to 1,000, we call those like icon wines. Those are wines whose names you've heard of, right? It's the first gross, like the Lafitte, the Latour, Cheval Blanc, what have you, DRC. And then even above that, or some of these are included in that, I guess, is $1,000 or plus, which we call dream wines. These are wines that, you know, you're really sweating when you think about opening the bottle. It's like, wow, that's $1,000 plus. And should I really be drinking this or should I sell it? Right. And there's often a rarity and scarcity associated with that. And it's almost like a dream to be able to, to drink those wines. I don't think I've drank very many of them. I guess I've had a couple, I've tried Screaming Eagle a couple of times and that would count in that category, but not too many. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if the people who are buying those wines are sweating as much as you or I would be uh, to <laughs> open those wines. So looking at those categories, do you attach kind of like a user segmentation or like a profile to each of these segments and who's buying those? Because I got to imagine if you're investment fund manager, you know, that you're more prevalent to be on one of those, drinking one of those on a regular basis than, than someone who's just even a, a tech bro. So I'm curious on how you attach user segmentation to those price points. Yeah, I think there's, it's more use cases to those price points, like that $100 everyday wine, right, for the luxury buyer, and then the 300 special occasion, and then it's like, oh, this is an iconic wine, it's special even to the highest end consumer and the, these other wines that are the dreams, right? So it's more like use cases for the luxury buyer. And in the book, we do segment the luxury buyer into four different segments. We have the wine collector, the wine geek, who's sort of more knowledge, who's often curious about wine and wine education. And we have like the true luxury buyer, who's more someone who's affluent and just likes to buy luxury brands. And then the aspirational buyer, someone who often looks up to the luxury buyers and wants to emulate them and associates, feels some level of association through maybe buying the same wine, right? Or maybe the lower end of the same wine, the second label. Where would you put yourself in those categories? I definitely put myself in the wine geek category. I mean, being an MW student, I guess, I, I mean, I have to <laughs> I have to put myself in that category. And I definitely don't have the the income or the wealth to be a true luxury buyer or a wine collector, really. What about you? I'd probably put myself in the wine geek category as well. You know, I, I try to drink a range of things. I feel like it's the same thing with restaurants. Like I want to I want to go to three Michelin star restaurants, but I also want to go to like really good street food. So I kind of want to run the range in food and wine. So I want to try all those things, but I can't afford to have a seller of DRC. I think I'd have to sell my right. house to just have, <laughs> have a wine fridge in the back of my car. <laughs> And I think the wine geeks, we tend to drink the affordable luxury on a frequent basis. And then we'll splurge up occasionally, right, to that luxury wines. But those are, I think, very different consumers. 
then the majority of wine consumers who are buying the seven to eight average dollar price of wine in a grocery store or or Costco or something like that. Not that I, of course, I've bought some wine from Costco before. They have very good pricing for some good wines, but the standard grocery store shelf pull, it's often a, a very different consumer and you're trying to target and market to them in different ways. So I'm curious on what impact price has on the perceived quality of the wine or the wine brand? Yeah, that's always the question of, is this wine worth it, right? This wine is like $300. Is it worth it? Is it worth it more than this $100 wine sitting next to it or this $50 wine next to it itself? Price does signal something to the consumer, right? So if Dom Perignon, for example, was a $40 champagne, I don't think it would be thought of the same way as it is today as $170 champagne. You don't think of Dom Perignon as your everyday champagne. It's definitely a special occasion one. And it signals that through its price. Right. But it's also not necessarily a rare wine because there's a lot of it made. Yeah, it's actually in the research we did for the book. It's the highest production luxury wine in the world. Because they make about 5 million bottles a year when they make it. They don't necessarily make it every year, but almost every year. But there's, and I'm not saying that all price is just perceived quality because real quality has to back it up for the prices to be justified over time. But from the consumer perspective, price does signal an element of quality. And so that changes, especially when you get to the luxury segment and luxury goods where you're looking for the best, sometimes you define the best by it having a higher price. Does that perception only matter up until the point you taste it? Dom Perignon is is expensive, but tasting other things in that class, I think it's fairly priced. That's my personal perception. But I'm curious on, there are things I've never heard of and never tried that are ridiculously expensive. And I'm just curious, like, is it, is that creates that price, creates that perception up until the point I taste it? And then does the wine have to back it up? Well, that's interesting because there have been some studies, like scientific studies, where when people know the price, it changes their perception of their wine, right? So you know that it's an expensive wine. If you had it blind, right, we taste wine blind, or we used to at least pre-COVID, and uh, you objectively assess the quality the best you can. But once you know the provenance or you know the what the wine is, you might say, oh my gosh, this is meant to be better. This needs to open up. And there's a reality that that might be true. And then there's a psychology of, hey, this is a really expensive wine. It, it must be good. Got it. Okay, so there's there's not really a great way to decouple those things because in order to experiment, you have to do a whole bunch of crazy experiments to, to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, one of the keys to having a, a luxury wine and making that brand last and be sustainable is having the highest quality, right? So if your quality is not there to back it up, that's kind of table stakes and you can price it as high as you want. It's going to eventually not sell, right? If you just slapped any label on a bottle of two buck chuck and price it for a thousand dollars, I think people catch on pretty quick. So I'm curious on how brands that maybe already have what you were deeming commercial wine, basically the sub hundred dollar wines, how do they go about creating a luxury wine brand if they already have those other ones? Because sometimes you have standalone wine brands that are that just that all they are is luxury, right? They're just targeting that. And I'm curious, how does someone who has a portfolio kind of carve that off and make a luxury brand and start to target a different consumer base? 
Yeah, there's usually two strategies, right? You either have your more what I'll call quote unquote commercial lines and you're building up. So then you're adding these layers of pricing that are higher and higher that are supposedly higher quality and more exclusive, lower production, all that sort of thing. Or there's the building down, right? Sometimes you start with a more expensive thing, then you're adding a second wine, a third wine and and whatnot and like expanding your product pyramid that way and getting more volume and, and, and generating that. You need to have a good story associated with it. The quality has to be there to back up the pricing. Sometimes the brand and the story of that high-end wine becomes so good in and of itself that people carve it off into a separate brand, right? That's sort of what Piper Heitzig is doing with Rare. That's sort of what Moyne Chandon did with Dom Perignon. But it can exist as a whole portfolio as well. When you think of like a portfolio as broad as Penfolds, right? They've got Grange at the very top. Then they have some of the higher end bins that are still $100 plus. And then they've got the basic wines that are like $10 or $15 a bottle, right? So they were able to, in that case, build up, but build up through Grange or made that experiment for Grange back in the 50s and then build it to be the highest and best wine in all of Australia. Yeah, I'm just curious on how many people are buying $10, $15 bottles of Penfolds and and working their way up to buy an $800 bottle of Grange. I'm just, it seems like a pretty big leap for me in terms of a price differential. Obviously, some of those higher end bins, maybe that is not as a big of a disconnect for me. Like I could see people were like, oh yeah, every once in a while, like good vintage, I'll buy, I'll buy Grange. But I think it's more Grange, right? Having that fame and notoriety and then that making people who can't afford Grange want to have some association with that and buy the cheaper penfolds, right? Although I do hear of wineries that ladder up. I remember talking to some of the Duckhorn people a while ago, and they have decoy customers where it's $20 at the grocery store. And then they learn that, oh, this is related to this Duckhorn thing. And then they've bought up because Duckhorn is more expensive, right? Like 40 to 80 or whatever range of pricing. So they learn about it through that low end one and then sort of buy up. So basically either starting with a portfolio and slowly building out to build out that luxury brand or your have a luxury brand that you're building out essentially a network of wines underneath it that are kind of stepping stones. But then there's also the ones that are just flat out luxury cult brands that just come out. I mean, like I think of the Harlan's as like they don't touch anything for under $600. <laughs> so it's, a you know, from Bond and Harlan and Promontory, like those are all really expensive wines and there's not really an entry level wine for them or even a even a sub $100 wine for them. Well, I think there is now, right? The mascot is like almost oh, their sure, third wine because right. you have, yeah, you have Harlan, That's you've got the main in, which is their second wine, which I think is like 250 or something. Yeah. And then, still- and then the, uh, now there's like the mascot, right? But they didn't for a long time. And I think that's a strategy of basically luxury branding and getting price over volume as your profit driver. Because the price of Harlan has went from like $300, what, maybe a decade ago or 15 years ago to 800 plus today. And then in terms of, I recently had talked with the CEO of Dom Melchor, and they were recently carved off from Conciatoro to basically set themselves up as a pure icon brand and have their own distinct packaging and messaging and not really being associated with, they're, they're almost, they're bifurcating their brand, kind of like what Dom Perignon did. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's, 
Between those three strategies, like which one do you think is the most common that you see for luxury brands? Is it starting with luxury brand and building an empire down? Is it stepping your way up to a luxury brand or is it just building something very exclusive and keeping it that way, kind of like the Harlan model? Sadly, they're all hard. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about luxury, it takes decades to really build that reputation. But I think the most successful strategies have been starting with the high-end line and getting building that reputation around it and then leveraging the status of that brand to sort of build out and have like second, third wines that are less expensive and drive some more volume. So, you know, obviously going back to like college economics classes, pricing is derived by the intersection between supply and demand curves. Does that really apply for luxury wines? And what do you think about that statement? I think it absolutely does. The difference is that for a luxury product, sometimes when you increase the price, you increase the demand. Right, because of this perceived quality thing, and that's not true for all all like you can't just say, "Hey, I'm going to have more demand at a higher price." But often, if the price is higher, it can increase demand. Some of that is driven by the supply demand dynamics of scarcity, right, and rarity, because people are if there's a demand for it, and then people are chasing after these luxury, hard to get, hard to find items, then price just starts to escalate. Right. And this is where wine auctions come into play, where we just interviewed Jamie Ritchie at Sotheby's. Right. And he talked about how how the auction market can capture that full set of pricing for wines that are in demand and have have the demand out there. And then from the demand perspective, there's really two types of demand when you talk about luxury wines. Most of us buy wine to drink. Right. There's like consumption demand. And so there's different reasons people buy wines at the higher end at the luxury tier. But then when you get to that level, there's also like an investment demand. There's all these people or even some funds that invest in wine. When we talk to Charlie Fu, right, who's one of the moderators or wine berserkers, he says, yeah, I just buy like cases. And then if I change my mind or I figure out I don't really like it, I sell it. Right. And he can often sell for more money. This is the old adage back in the day in old school Britain, right, of building your country home cellar and you buy two cases and you sell one later and then you drink one, right? And, and the profit of selling one later helps fund you drinking one. And thinking of those two pieces of demand differently, I think helps in terms of how you can establish your pricing. Right. But I have to imagine that some of those, especially the cult wines out of Napa, or I mean, anywhere, I mean, I guess any cult wine, they want you to sit on those wines and sell them. That actually helps with their their supply issue, right? Like if they're basically turning around and flipping them on the secondary market or drinking them all, I guess drinking them all is not, not an issue as well. But like they basically don't want them to, they want people to like sit on them and covet them and hope for them to appreciate that decreases the overall circulation of those wines, correct? Well, they definitely want people to appreciate them for sure. But part of the appreciation is consumption. I think they actually do want people to drink because that will reduce the supply, make it even rarer to buy and increase the secondary market pricing. Right. So if I'm out there selling wine today or I release some wine, I'm thinking, okay, what do I price it at? If there's a big secondary market for it, and let's say I'm releasing the wine at $100, but on the secondary market, it's going for 500 right? Because lots of people want to buy it, but there's limited supply and there's a lot of demand for it because it's got a great reputation or high scores or whatnot. Then I can think, oh, well, maybe I can sell it for 200 or start increasing the price to capture some of that. So 
if people are drinking the wine and then it's keeping the secondary market pricing high because of that with a dwindling supply, then that has a positive impact on what I can do pricing wise for future releases. You can slowly start to close that gap between the primary market and the secondary market. Mm-hmm. But if it's sitting on it and there's you're trading it, you want there to be enough demand so that there is a secondary market and people are trading it and selling it and want to do that. But you also want people to, to drink it to keep the pricing high on the secondary market. Got it. So having lived abroad for a while, you always found there was a customer set that would that just wants the best. And for them, the best means the most expensive, whether it means they flip to the last page of the list for the rarities, or they just want, like, it's a cachet of, hey, I paid $3,000 for this bottle of wine. How do you market to that consumer? Because Is it just making something really expensive? Like, what are the drivers <laughs> for that consumer? Yeah, I remember a, a friend of mine who worked in hospitality in Napa said, this is sometimes associated with, like, more new money <laughs> and new rich but said that they had a, a guy from China come into the tasting room and just said, give me however much of the most expensive wine. And then he just dropped a bag of like, I think 20 grand in cash <laughs> right? and, and said that. But I think I think you need to have an array of demand. That's a small segment of the market. And you need to be able to sell to people in all the different quadrants of the luxury wine consumer spectrum in order to have the reputation to make sure that they also don't look dumb, in other words, right, for spending a lot of money on something that's not worth it. Because consumers get more educated over time, and they'll know. And with technology now, like Wine Searcher and other things, they can tell. So you can't just price something that, well, one, is overpriced for no particular reason. And you want to make it at least have that value in some way, shape, or form. And that that could be just through like scarcity and, and just the reputation and build the brand for the quality and the reputation of the wines. So I've talked a lot about in the past about Bordeaux and in terms of pricing and how they do all that in terms of release pricing and then and they kind of grow over time for the non-premier. But then now Burgundy is so hot and the prices have utterly skyrocketed. Obviously, you have a lot more producers and a smaller plot of piece of land compared to Bordeaux. But you get these really tiny producers who are making a barrel of this bottle or a couple barrels of that bottling from that specific terroir or Ludi that they're working with. And I'm curious on how that scarcity can be measured because a lot of times those wines don't necessarily have big scores or or they're just hard to find and therefore their prices have utterly skyrocketed. Like how do you, who are those consumers and who is buying those things? Well, those are the wine collectors, right? The ones who are seeking out that something rare so that they can have it in their cellar and show off to their fellow wine collectors or friends, right? Like, hey, there's only one barrel worth of this wine or only a hundred cases made of this wine. And I have one and it's worth a lot. And that's, that's where the auction markets really come into play and help set the price of those wines. But that's, yeah, with Burgundy, it's quality and demand and people love Burgundy these days, but the dramatic pricing driven largely by a scarcity and the fact they don't make a lot of wine and each wine they make is only in very limited production. Like you said, it could be 25 to like 200 cases of each wine. So I'm curious on as a consumer then as a, or as a potential collector or as a working on my consumption as a wine geek, what are some of the considerations that I should be looking at in terms of pricing for some of these wines in this tier of pricing? If I'm looking over hundred dollars, like how do I know if I'm really getting a luxury wine, if it's worth it, like what kind of tricks or tips can you give me for breaking this down? Well, 
as a consumer, you have to know what you like, right? And, and what you want and sort of know the wines of the world and what you're using the wine for. Because I think you think about, am I going to like this wine a lot? That's important if you're consuming it. If you're using it to boost your status in a way or, or have something special in your cellar or something that you covet, then the brand is really important and the brand strength is important that it's well known, that it's recognized because you might have a wine that you like better, that's actually priced lower. But the whole point of the wine is to kind of have something special in your cellar. And so the brand is almost more important than the wine, right? So to have a first growth Chateau Margot might be, you know, what you want over a fifth growth Margot Chateau, right? That is less expensive, but you might actually enjoy drinking it and drinking it more. Yeah, so from a consumer perspective, it, it depends on what you want. This the other thing, you know, you lived in China for a long time, the gifting culture, right, is also associated with that, associated with the brand, right? And like, have people heard of it before? If they have, and there's an, a reputation, a positive, hopefully, reputation for the brand, then you're willing to pay more for that, right? So... I think as a consumer for all wines and looking for value, if you're looking for, is this worth it or not? Then, you know, if there are critics that you like where their scores are aligned with your palate and you can find the higher, higher quality proxied by score wines that are priced better in your price range, then, then that could be one way of doing it. Or it's exploring different parts of the world. This is where, you know, wine geeks like us, get interested because, yeah, we know the $500 plus bottles of wine and we could theoretically afford a f- one or two <laughs> of those bottles or we could buy 10 bottles of $50 wines in less well-known parts of the world where that might be the most expensive wine of the region and the area and over-deliver on the quality for what we appreciate and enjoy. So now flipping onto the wine brand side in terms of what are their considerations for pricing, like to understand that their pricing strategy is going to work for said wine? Like what should they be thinking about? Yeah, we go into this in detail in, in the book and luxury wine marketing. But for sure, the number one factor is quality. If you don't have quality, you're gonna, you're not going to be able to sustain that pricing, right? And this is, you, you mentioned Harlan earlier. He's famous for having held back his first two vintages or and never sold them, right? Because he didn't feel like the quality was high enough to justify releasing wines at the highest price in Napa, which he wanted to do. Then there's sort of like your brand strength, right? Because there are some brands that are so strong that there's no substitute for them. You can't say that I drank the best Burgundy, right? And Or saying that I drank the best Burgundy is different from saying I drank Domaine de la Romani Conti, right? <laughs> I drank DRC. There's no way you can't substitute because the brand, that brand is so strong. So the stronger your brand strength is, the more pricing power you have. Sort of a converse but or related point to that is sort of competition, right? What are other people, if you aren't that iconic brand that is not substitutable, what are other wines in the area priced at and how do you compare to that? especially if you think about being on a retail shelf and you see all the wines on the retail shelf and one of them is priced at $80 and the other one's priced at $200 next to it. But otherwise, they all describe and look the same. It might be more challenging to be able to price at that point. Sometimes it depends on how you're selling the wines as well. And then I think there's always like 
and this fluctuates a lot, but external influences, you know, if we have major downturns in the economy and stock market or people aren't as flush, that, that makes it tougher. I did a study a while ago, this is very macro, probably 10, 12 years ago during the Great Recession on the overall wine market. And what was interesting is like wine was growing so much in the U.S. for the past like three, four decades. And a third of that growth of revenue was volume. Two thirds was price. Right. And so we're like, okay, what's what's correlated with this premiumization or uptrend in that? And the thing we found that was the closest was actually net wealth lagged by a year. So you almost have to have generated wealth, be it through the stock market or real estate or whatever, kind of paid your taxes, you know, a year later. And now you feel comfortable enough to like buy that next level of wine, right? So uh, those external influences are important. I, I think that's for trading up. I think people pull back on the downturn a little faster than a year, <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, talking about brand strength, there's also so many new wine brands popping up in for example, Napa, where their first bottle out of the door is over $100 and sometimes upwards of like $300. And I'm curious how, sure, they may have a high quality wine and they definitely have competition. And let's assume this, the factors are the external factors are the same. But that brand strength is interesting because they're basically, they don't have a brand. How do they do that? How do they, how do they charge those premiums and get away with it? Is it truly just writing, completely just writing on the quality level? I think it's riding on quality. It's riding on building that brand reputation. So hopefully if they're pricing at 300, they got some at least really good scores to justify, you know, to sort of pin something, a third party validation of quality. And they might be hopefully very limited in production and selling direct. And they may be riding off the backs of other brands. Some, a lot of these have, quote unquote, famous consulting winemakers or other things that they're leveraging that brand to help sell that product as well. But it is challenging. There's a lot of people who may be sitting on some wines, right? If they don't get that right and don't build that brand, but it, and it takes time to build that brand. So you may have to, as a brand, hold back some wine for the library to release later, not sell it all so quickly or, or there's so little that it just sells out pretty easily for people who are in that market. Because normally when you start a new brand, you're, you're primarily selling to like friends and family first, right? Or it's got enough reputation, you had like validation, so you've got like a 100-point score or something like that, and people are kind of, you know, clamoring for it. There was a quote that I pulled out that was from Antonio Galloni, and he was basically talking about uh, this very thing about wineries launching with these really exorbitant prices. And he was in his quote is, a new estate starts out at $250 a bottle, has never had an earlier customer. It's a high stakes poker game because at these prices, the market has no patience for anything less than extraordinary quality. So do you have any examples of that poker game not working out so well? <laughs> I think they're a bunch and they tend to sell <laughs> sell their winery over time and they shut down, right? I don't I don't know specific examples, but there's certainly a lot. I think that's true. There's no patience for that if the quality isn't there. But at the same one reason why people do come out of that price is because they also need to anchor their customer base and where they fit in the marketplace, right? So if they came out at let's say $100 or even lower like let's say a $75 bottle of wine, it's going to be harder for them to build up to that 250 range than to start at 250 and maybe sell much less wine up front, but 
establish the reputation that this is where they belong and the quality, the product, the story, the packaging, it's all got to fit together. As Glenn said, it's all got to hit hit on all angles to really make it work. So what you're saying there is it's easier to step down than it is to step up necessarily. Like the, the investment effort to do that, you're playing a longer game, it sounds like, but it's easier to start with a premium thing and kind of add either increased supply to lower your price or add more offerings at lower price and diversify that way. Right. Yeah. When you're trying to play the luxury game, you have to start with the highest quality and you have to price appropriately. Almost look at like Tesla, right? They started with the Roadster, right? At a hundred plus thousand dollars a car and made a, a great vehicle that they then discontinued later and substituted with their other product lines. I learned a lot. Now I don't have to read that chapter of the book. I can just uh, reference this <laughs> podcast. Uh, no, I'm, please buy the book, everybody. It'll help Peter to buy more of these wines so I can taste them. <laughs> <laughs> so again, as we do our wrap up, I'm going to ask you the question about wine pricing. What is your lasting trend and your fizzling fad for wine pricing? Yeah, in terms of lasting trend, I think more and more wine regions around the world are focused on quality and building up some level of investment demand. We talked about various of these when interviewing the wine auction folks, and it'll start to take some pressure off of Bordeaux and Burgundy, which are you know the main drivers of investment grade wine now. But so areas like Napa, Champagne are already there, but like Piedmont, the Northern Rhone, and others are starting to come up. And I think around the world, more quality wines are coming out there, more wines that'll become investment grade wines, and that'll start to elevate their pricing over time. And what about your fizzling fad? I think a fizzling fad is, and this is a trend I had heard about, is that some people prop up their secondary market pricing through like fake wholesale pricing, or they just like have one retailer or something that they're close with price it really high just to boost what the price looks like on Wine Searcher so that when people go check the pricing, they think they're getting a better deal to, to buy direct and yeah, I, I, don't, I think you have to be authentic with all these things and the, the market forces need to be there for it to really work over the long haul. That's interesting. I never considered that as a possibility that this wine was just sold at one or two retailers that someone had a inside track with. When I look at wine searcher, I always look for the big names and retailers to kind of like trust what they're saying about in terms of pricing. But that totally makes sense now that you said it. And because it's only what it's offered at, it's not actually transacting or sales price, right? So you can offer it at anything and sort of influence the, the wine searcher price that way. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Peter, thank you for educating me and breaking down uh, all these luxury wine prices and giving me some new terms. Uh, this is very insightful. It's good to do our old format again. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.